0: Let's turn together to the Word of God in John 4. We're going to read John 4, verses 1 through 26. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, Though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest, Drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him. And he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that setst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah is cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. That's as much of the word of God as we read this morning. Especially with John 4, verses 23 and 24. We're also going to read the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the second commandment in Lord's Day 35. You'll find that on page twenty one in the back of the Psalter, the Lord's Day thirty five questions and answers ninety six through ninety eight. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Are images, then, not at all to be made? God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any resemblance of them, either in order to worship them, or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity. No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. That last Question and answer is a reference especially to the Roman Catholic Church's use of images, pictures, and statues of God, of Jesus, and of the saints. The Roman Catholic Church defends that practice by calling such images, books to the laity, the laity being the members of the church who are considered to be so ignorant and unspiritual that they need those images as books to the laity. And the Heidelberg Catechism, in question and answer 98, rejects the teaching and practice of Roman Catholicism. We are going to be looking more at the positive requirements of the second commandment, especially as those requirements apply to us. And I want to begin this morning with a couple of questions, questions that I want you to answer in your own minds and hearts. And the first question is, do you think that it matters how we worship God? Does it matter whether we sing psalms or hymns? Does it matter whether we have a sermon or sometimes replace the sermon with Something else, perhaps a PowerPoint presentation or some testimonies. Does that matter? Does it matter whether we have choirs and special numbers or insist on congregational? singing? Do things like that, and there are a thousand more besides, do things like that matter in the worship of God? What do you think? And the second question, it's similar but even more important, Is this does it matter to God how we worship Him? Or is He happy enough with just the fact that we do worship and are? sincere and enthusiastic in our worship. Is that all he wants? And I think you know that much of the church world in answer to those questions would say no, those things don't matter in the worship of God. The how of worship doesn't matter. The only thing that really matters is that we're sincere, enthusiastic, and do worship him. It's questions of that sort. The Heidelberg Catechism is answering in its explanation of the second commandment and the Second Commandment itself is about the how of worshiping God. And the Second Commandment, the Heidelberg Catechism, along with it in its explanation, insists that it does matter how we worship God. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way that we are not to worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. So the subject of this morning's sermon is the proper worship of God. The Proper worship of God. Implying, of course... That there are all different ways in which we might worship him improperly and wrongly. In exploring that theme, we're going to talk about God himself as the one whom we worship. How we worship is so important, in other words because of who He is, in all His glory and majesty, as the only true and living God. It's important for that reason that we worship Him properly. And then we're going to talk more about the how of worshiping Him. And what he does require, what it means, for example, when the Heidelberg Catechism says that we must worship him as he has commanded in his word. What does he command? And then finally, we're going to be emphasizing the fact that what we do, what we're doing here this morning, is worship. And that's something that needs to be emphasized. If you ask the question, why are we here? Why am I here? Then the answer is, must be, to worship. So those three things, and I want to start by talking about images. I'm not sure. All of you, perhaps the children especially, understand what exactly images are. But images are, that's the Heidelberg Catechism, images are representations, pictures, statues, things like that. A photograph is an image of someone. Representations of anything. And the Heidelberg Catechism in explaining the second commandment tells us that it's not wrong. Not wrong in itself to make images. It's not wrong To have photographs, pictures, even statues of different kinds. But what the second commandment forbids is representations, pictures, statues, any representation of God himself. And don't forget that Jesus is God. Or representations of other things that are used in the worship of God. We may have pictures, but not pictures that are supposed to help us worship him. And the great example of an image is the golden calf that the Israelites made at Mount Sinai. That was not an idol. An idol is some representation, usually a statue, of some other god. Baal, Buddha, whatever God you're talking about, that's an idol. And the first commandment forbids that. We are to have no other gods beside Jehovah. But an image is something that's supposed to represent God or be a help in worshiping him. And that's what the golden calf was at Mount Sinai. When Aaron, having taken the jewelry of the Israelites and melted it down and made that golden calf, when he presented it to them, he said, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Not Baal. Jehovah. Now why he thought God could be represented by a golden calf, I don't know. But it was supposed to be a representation of God. And therefore not an idol, but an image. And the calves that Jeroboam made were also images. He destroyed Or he was not at that point worshiping Baal, and Jehu, who followed him, would later destroy the worship of Baal and set up those golden calves again. But they were not supposed to represent some idol god of one of the heathen nations around them, but Jehovah himself. Jeroboam said to the people, You don't need to go to Jerusalem. To worship God, you can worship that him right here. Here he is, represented by these golden calves, which I've set up here in Bethel and also in Dan. Those are images. And the Heidelberg Catechism says, God may not be worshipped in that way. And we can see it doesn't doesn't take much effort to figure out the fact that a golden calf, praying to it, sacrificing to it, worshiping it, is not the way to worship God. But that's just one example. A very impressive, Example of the fact that we have to be very careful about how we worship him. It was wrong of Israel to worship God in that way. And the second commandment is not just forbidding that kind of thing, but is forbidding any improper worship of Jehovah. He must not be worshipped, the Heidelberg Catechism says, in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Why is that? Why do we have to be careful in worshipping him? What do you think? Why do you have to be careful? And I about how we worship him here each Lord's Day? The answer, I suggested that at the beginning, lies in who God is. The second commandment is not just arbitrary. God isn't, doesn't give us the second commandment just to make things difficult for us. But he gives us a second commandment because of who he is. And that is what Jesus is talking about in John 4, verse 24, where he says, God is a spirit. And then adds, they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? God is a spirit. Well, the reference is not to the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's not what Jesus is talking about. But he's talking about the fact that God is himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, spiritual. Now again, you're probably asking yourself, well, what does that mean? Well, if you want an explanation of that, you have a lovely explanation in First Timothy 6. What does it mean that God is a spirit? Well, it means this. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. By the way, the Word of God is speaking especially of him as he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. Verse 15 says, which in his time he, times he shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, supreme ruler, the king of kings and lord of lords. And then this, in verse 16, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see to whom be honor and power everlasting. That's what Jesus is talking about in John 4 verse 24. That God is so great, so wonderful, so majestic, that apart from his revelation of himself in Jesus Christ, we cannot see him and never will see him except in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So glorious that no eye has ever seen him or can see him. And you could see then how it follows that we may not try to make any representation of Him and say, this is what God's like. He looks like this. But that also means. And that's the second commandment that when we worship him we have to be very careful not to worship him as we think but to worship him as he says. You haven't seen me. You can't see me. So worship me only as I tell you to do. Don't try to worship me with a golden calf. That takes away from my glory. Don't try to worship me as you think best, because that too takes away from my glory. You see? And it's for that reason that God cares. How we worship him cares a great deal. And it shouldn't make any difference to us that the majority of Christians today think that it doesn't make any difference. How exactly you worship God. Because the testimony of Scripture is that he does care. Let me give you a few examples. First of all, the example of Cain. And you can make the application of that to the church world today. When Cain brought an offering, and remember, he brought an offering. When he brought his offering, God rejected it, was angry with Cain because Cain didn't bring the right thing. Instead of a lamb, he brought some of his fruits and vegetables. And Cain, of course, came under the judgment of God for that. That's one example. You have also the example of the two oldest sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. The story is in Leviticus 10, if you want to read it. They brought, they were priests, they brought, when they came into the tabernacle to offer incense, what the Bible calls strange fire offering the incense. Bringing it to the altar of incense with fire as God commanded. But they made one mistake, although I'm not sure it was a mistake. They didn't take the fire from the altar of burnt offering. That was the only thing they did wrong. do you remember what happened to them? They were burned to death by fire that came out of the tabernacle. God said, it matters to me whether the fire comes from the altar of burnt offering or somewhere else. It matters down to the smallest details how you worship me. The third example is the example of King Uzziah, one of the later kings of Judah. That story is told in 2 Chronicles 26. But Uzziah tried to do what only the priests were allowed to do, to offer the incense in the temple himself. He was king. And by the way, he was a good man, too. One of Judah's godly kings. But he did one thing wrong in the worship of God. Instead of letting the priest bring the incense into the temple, he tried to bring it himself. And God made that pious and God-fearing king a leper for the rest of his life for that one fault in the worship of God. And I might add that those three examples a reminder of one of the most important things in the worship of God, and that's this, that it must be Christ-centered, which is the same thing as it being God-centered. It must be about Him. He must be the emphasis in all the different parts of the worship of God. Cain's fault was that he brought a Christless sacrifice. The fault of Aaron's sons was that the fire for the incense did not come from the altar where those sacrifices were offered that pointed ahead to the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah's fault was that he forgot that there is only one who can come into the presence of God with the prayers of God's people represented by that incense, and that's Christ himself represented in the Old Testament by the priests. And I'm going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. But that's something to think about. The worship of God is not, first of all, about me. My feelings. My need. But it's about Christ. If Christ is lifted up in the worship of God, then that matters more than my feelings and my needs. And that's what matters most of all when God is worshiped. Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Christ come in the flesh. Christ crucified and risen again. Christ at the right hand of God. Christ coming again. Every sermon must be about him. And if it is, it's a good sermon if it's not, no matter how it may stir my feelings, it's not a good sermon. And by the way, you have the responsibility when someone stands up here to make sure that they do what the Apostle Paul did when he preached. That they preach Christ and Him crucified. And if the minister doesn't preach Christ in him crucified, then it is your obligation to say to him, sir, we would see Jesus. That's the reason too why we sing the Psalters, the Psalms. We sing them because they are the words of Christ himself. And it's not easy, not difficult to see that it's far better, really the only thing to do in the singing of the church, to sing his words rather than the words of men. So that's part that gets us into the second point of my sermon. That's part of what the proper worship of God is—that it's Christ-centered. But that means that means that this is everything. In the worship of God. And it's everything because it's full of Christ. There is not a page in the word of God. That doesn't have as it were written across it. His name as the only Savior. The only way to the Father. The one who is crucified for our sins and risen again for our justification. The benedictions. The law. All that we do in the worship of God must be from this, founded on this, full of this, and in that way, full, of Christ, the only Savior. The Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes that when it says that we must not worship God in any other way than he has commanded in his word. I'm not going to do that this morning. But if you make a study of the different parts of the worship service, our worship services, you should find that they are a result of the efforts of the church to do exactly what the Heidelberg Catechism requires. Worship him in no other way than he has commanded in his word. And worshiping him as he commands to make this everything in the worship of God. There are articles if you if you're interested in that there are many articles in the old issues of the Standard Bear about that kind of thing. I think Professor Greece wrote a series of articles to that effect not that long ago in the Standard Bear pointing out in detail how the different parts of the worship service are part of the church's effort, our church's efforts to worship according to the word of God and therefore to worship with Christ himself as the center of that worship. That's what Jesus means in John 4 too when he says in truth they that worship God must worship Him because He's a spirit, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes that further. When it talks about the lively preaching of His Word, God will have His people taught. That's what the worship is about teaching. Teaching God's people about Him, being taught about Him. God will have his people taught not by dumb images but by the lively preaching of his word. It's the sermon. The sermon is an exposition of a passage of God's word. And in that way also Christ speaking to his people that must be the center of of our worship and may not, may not be replaced by other things. Or cut down to the point where it's almost nothing in the worship of God. You see? But that's not all Jesus says, is it, in John 4? In truth... But he says it in spirit too. And that's the point where you and I are often guilty of breaking the second commandment worshiping God improperly. What does Jesus mean when he says in spirit? No, he's not saying in the Holy Spirit, although we should worship in the Holy Spirit that is by the grace and presence of the Spirit. But Jesus is talking there about the fact that our worship must be from the heart. We must put everything into the worship of God. Heart and mind and soul and strength. And he means, of course, that the worship of God is not just a matter of me warming a spot in one of the pews, but emphasizing the fact that my worship of God is something in which I actively participate with everything that's in me. And you know where that's leading, don't you? Yes, the Roman Catholic Church is wrong with its use of images. But so am I. When I sit here on the Lord's Day, hardly hear a word of the sermon because in my head I'm busy with all the affairs of the coming week. Planning out the week, planning my work, thinking about what needs to be done. You don't need to be told, I don't shouldn't need to be told that that's as improper as trying to use a golden calf in the worship of God. Isn't it? to let the words of the prayer, the congregational prayer, go past me without ever joining my heart with the other members of the church in prayer to God, as is, is as improper as pictures of Mary and the saints used supposedly to worship the God of heaven and earth. Isn't it? And as we've seen, that matters to God. You know what he says about that kind of worship in the last chapter of Isaiah? Do you? When you and I come to church, sit under the worship of God, but get nothing out of it and put nothing into it. Isaiah has some very, very strong words about that in Isaiah 66. Although he's talking to the Jews about the sacrifices they brought and all that was involved in the worship of God in those days, God says, take, take that to heart. He that killeth an ox is as if he slew a man. He that sacrificeth a lamb is as if he cut off a dog's neck. He that offereth an oblation as if he offered swine's blood. He that burneth incense as if he blessed an idol. Who's the true worshiper? Not the one who comes only because it's expected of him and who puts nothing into the worship of God. But this is the true worshiper, the one God says to whom I will look, him that is of a poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. That's what the second commandment is all about. But there's one more thing it is about worship. And in our day and age, that needs to be emphasized. Because you and I coming to church often go away saying, to get much out of that. Complain about the fact that the sermons don't stir our emotion. They probably should. But that is not what it is all about. It's about worship. God himself being honored and praised and thanked and glorified. And I would go so far as to say that if there's a worship service out of which I get nothing, but in which God's name is honored and praised, then that was a good worship service. It's not about me, not first of all, although I should be blessed in the worship of God too. But it's about him. You are here this morning for the honor and glory of his name. That above all. And when you get to heaven, that will be what heaven is all about. not interested in the worship of God here, then you're really not interested in heaven as well. The irony of that is that when you come thinking only of yourself, when I come thinking only of my feelings and my needs, then I don't get much out of the worship of God when I come into the presence of the Almighty, the God of my salvation, the Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, when I come to Him and come with the intention of saying again, in the presence of His people, Something about his greatness and glory. When that's what matters to me, first of all, then the worship of God becomes the blessing that it ought to be. Because as Psalm 16 puts it, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures Forevermore. That's something to take home, isn't it? And then to take back with you again this evening. God grant it. Amen. Father, we thank thee for what we've heard this morning. May we appreciate what the second commandment requires of us, the privilege that we have as thy people worshiping thee, and of worshiping thee to the best of our ability as thou hast commanded in thy word, in spirit and in truth. Forgive whatever sins we have committed in the worship of God this morning. Lead us each in peace and safety to our own homes once again, and back here this evening to worship Thee in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name we ask it.